Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I'm interviewing my very first National Geographic Explorer. Joining me is Dr. Victoria Herman, the Managing Director of the Arctic Institute, and as I noted, a National Geographic Fellow and Explorer. We'll learn about Victoria's journey to over 100 communities across the U.S., discovering how these communities are adapting to climate change. As a consequence of her travels, she created a nonprofit organization called Rising Tides that seeks to pair adaptation experts with those communities that need this assistance. It's really a fascinating journey around the country and very inspiring how these conversations led to Rising Tides. You're going to love this episode. Also, as part of a recurring conversation I'm having, Judge Alice Hill is back for a short interview highlighting a recent chapter in a book she contributed on the adaptation actions that occurred during President Obama's administration. Alice will take us behind the scenes on how some of the adaptation policy was developed. Okay, before we get started, I want to thank Laura Hetsey-Fisher and her team at the MIT Environmental Solutions Initiative for inviting me to emcee their awesome live radio event during Earth Week. Laura hosts the Today I Learn Climate podcast as part of their environmental program, and they did a live event highlighting a few episodes of the podcast and bringing on the MIT professors that were the experts in those episodes. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, Laura, for the invite. And definitely check out their podcast, Today I Learned Climate. Don't forget to subscribe to the America Daps newsletter. We highlight the latest episode and all the content is related to that episode's theme. Definitely sign up, encourage your friends and colleagues also. The link is in the show notes. Okay, adapters, let's take a National Geographic journey with Dr. Victoria Herman. Hey, adapters, welcome back. Today, I have a very exciting episode. I am talking with Dr. Victoria Herman. Victoria is the Managing Director of the Arctic Institute, a Gates Scholar at Cambridge University, and a National Geographic Explorer. Hi, Victoria. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Great to be here. Looking forward to this conversation. It's been a real treat to do some background research on you. But let's just start off because you I wasn't even quite sure how to introduce you, but let's just start off. What is the Arctic Institute? The Arctic Institute is a nonprofit organization that's based here in Washington, D.C., but we have a team of about 45 researchers across North America and Europe working towards a just, sustainable, and secure Arctic. We do research across the many dimensions of Arctic security. So think climate security, which is what I do, cultural security, but also maritime security, hard security, food security, making sure everyone is safe, healthy, and their well-being is up across the Arctic region. Now, what is a Gates Scholar? A Gates Scholar is a scholarship that I was very fortunate to have to complete my PhD at Cambridge University in the UK. It's a scholarship that is afforded to anyone who is a resident outside of the UK and is dedicated to improving the lives of others. So that includes me, a geographer, but also biologists and chemists, anthropologists and lawyers, all working, hopefully, towards a better world. Okay, so this is not associated with Bill Gates at all. It was established by Bill Gates uh, and established alongside his father, Bill Gates Sr. So it is his money and his vision that started it 20 years ago this year, actually. So we are celebrating our 20th anniversary in 2021. 
Okay, so that's right. I mean, I see that name Gates. You usually typically think of Bill Gates. <laughs> and finally, a National Geographic Explorer. And I think that's a fellowship, but could you explain what that even means? What does it mean to be a National Geographic Explorer? And that is really cool title to have. Yeah, a National Geographic Explorer is a great thing to have on a business card right. in DC handout. It's also a pretty awesome job. National Geographic explorers are researchers, storytellers, conservationists that are funded through grants from National Geographic Society to do cool and impactful things around the world. My work focuses on climate change, adaptation, displacement, and migration. And Nat Geo funds my research here in the U.S. and U.S. territories and also in Fiji working on those issues. They also give me a pretty awesome stage here in D.C. to share my work with the public and hopefully inspire more folks to join us in the climate fight. I think I'd be so obnoxious if I was that. I'd just be, a, you know, hi, I'm Doug, National Geographic Explorer. <laughs> it's such a cool name. All right. You are doing some great work with them. And I think we I want we talked about how we kind of would go through this. And I want to start off with the America's Eroding Edges Project, because I think that builds into some of your current work here. And I think it's this really just amazing journey that you did. But can you give some background? And that is related to the work that you did with National Geographic, right? Yeah. In 2015, I applied for a National Geographic grant to basically do a listening tour across the U.S. and U.S. territories on how climate change was impacting coastal communities and what was needed most to support those communities in enacting their visions for a resilient future. And I was pretty fortunate to be able to get that grant and hit the ground running in 2016 with my research partner, Eli Keen. For two years, we traveled across America and interviewed just over 350 local leaders. And that ranged from village elders in Alaska to the mayor of Miami. We asked questions about how climate change, sea level rise, extreme storms were impacting their communities. And if the national government was going to act to support them, what they needed most to enact their vision of resilience for the future of their communities. Now, I've got there's a lot to unpack here. And that so did you capture any of it outside? Like, I think you're writing things down, but was there sort of an audio? Are you doing any video associated with this? We have a whole trove of audio from these uh, interviews, but unfortunately, unlike you, Doug, I am not an audio expert, so <laughs> they are just sitting in our Dropbox. There was an ambition to put out a podcast to share these interviews with the world and be able to really tell America's climate change story. But the overall goal of the project, how was this going to inform national policy on climate change, kind of came to an abrupt halt in November 2016, when we realized that we had just interviewed 350 leaders with the goal of informing policy. And there probably wasn't going to be any climate policy at the federal level coming during the Trump administration. So we kind of shifted gears from thinking about how to 
help support informed policy from these interviews and how to tell this story to how to make sure that we didn't just extract all of this information and weren't serving those communities in some meaningful way. Again, the the journey itself, I think, is fascinating. And so when you first started this off, you got this grant from National Geographic, but did how did you plot it out? Because that in itself is interesting. And I'm sure that could inform policy, too. I mean, you have we have this sort of stereotype, what kind of communities might be impacted by climate change, but you visited so many. Did you have them all pre-identified even before you left? Or did you like halfway through go, you know what, we're not hearing enough about extreme heat? How did that unfold? Yeah, that's a great question. We first started looking at what the media was covering. And part of the proposal for this was to kind of flip the media narrative on its head. Most times when we hear about climate change impacting coastal communities, especially when it comes to displacement, migration, relocation, communities are often positioned as victims of climate change. And I wasn't really buying that. They were highly vulnerable, but they weren't victims. They were empowered and knowledgeable communities. And so part of the communities we chose were communities that were portrayed as being victims of climate change that probably had pretty informed ideas about how to live in a resilient future that weren't being reported. And from there, we took a snowball research impact approach. And that just means that every time you talk to someone, which I'm sure you know from interviewing, you ask, who should I talk to next? And so that kind of snowballs into the next person, the next 10 people, the next 100 people that you talk to across the country, which is a pretty cool way to hear about what people are doing, but also how connected every community is, whether you are in American Samoa or Alabama. Now, I'm I'm guessing you probably had an idea of who you wanted to talk to before even you arrived in a community, but did you try to get that sort of random conversation from maybe someone from the public when you actually were in a community? How did that work? We talked to both Local leaders that you readily think of, people like mayors or governors of territories, tribal elders and councilwomen and men. But we also talk to less expected leaders, people like bank managers or businesswomen, photographers in the community that were stepping up and being the local champions on climate action. And again, we heard a lot of these people from being in communities. So in American Samoa, we were there for a month talking to people, listening to people, and making sure that at every conversation's end, we were asking, who should we talk to next? And that expands from, you know, just the mayor of a village to the photographer that is dedicating her life to informing people about climate impacts and sustainability. I imagine, depending on where you're headed, you're not going in and starting things off. Even when you're approaching them to set up the interview, we want to talk about how climate change is impacting your community, because you know that could be a loaded question. How did, based on the different kind of communities that you're visiting, how did you even bring up climate change? Because I hear a lot now, some people don't even want to bring up, which I don't agree with, but, well, we're just going to talk about how extreme storm events impact your community. So how did that go? 
We did not introduce the phrase climate change into our questions. We allowed the interviewees to talk about climate change. So we positioned the questions around environmental change and waited for them to talk about climate because we did this project across the U.S. And that meant that there were a number of communities that we talked to where people did not believe in man-made climate change, but they believed that the environment was changing around them. They saw erosion, they saw sea level rise, and that was interesting too, understanding how people were talking about environmental change, who they were associating was responsible for those changes, and what they needed to do to adapt. I'll also say that we did this at a pretty interesting time, and I'm not sure that we would have the same results if we did this in 2021. We started in January 2016, and we finished in 2017. So we were traveling across the country just as the 2016 election was rolling out. And I think America was a bit different five years ago than what it is today. Interesting. I just, I'd love to see a map of all the places that you visited before you even headed out. And I know that politics probably influenced a little bit, but what did you have in, in, I guess, in your head when you went out that you thought you might hear from folks? And I guess, what were some of the surprises that you were hearing? I thought that I would hear a lot about infrastructure for my career working in climate change adaptation. You talk a lot about buildings. You talk a lot about roads and airstrips. And people talked about those things, but they quickly moved past that to show me fields that were facing saltwater intrusion. And they were afraid that they couldn't take these culturally important staple crops to the next holiday. People brought me out and showed me where they used to ice fish and could no longer do that. People talked about a historic site that was going underwater in the Chesapeake Bay, and they couldn't do much about it. I had never heard of historic preservation going into this project, and I ended up partnering with the National Trust of Historic Preservation by the end of it. Because people kept bringing up traditions, food, faith, historic livelihoods, sites that were critical and had no resources to be adapted to a warmer world. Some of the communities like Miami, for example, you, if you talk to the mayor, he can probably point to staff people that are working on this, probably something that he's quite proud of. But there's other communities that don't probably have anything. But how often would you encounter where you know, local officials or whoever you were talking to, they could point to someone who is actually working specifically on these issues like adaptation. How I mean, how common was that? Adaptation in particular wasn't very common. People were working, if on climate change, on mitigation. You could point to someone who was working to get greenhouse gases down. And in bigger cities, you pointed to people who were chief resilience officers. In Miami-Dade and Miami Beach, that's the offices that we are directed to, people working on resilience as an umbrella term. Folks working specifically on adaptation in 2016-2017, most of these communities didn't have those people with that job title. 
That's not to say there weren't adapters in most of these communities, particularly in indigenous communities and territorial communities. There were people that were using indigenous and traditional knowledge that had been passed down from generation to generation to adapt their food systems, adapt their homes to changing weather patterns. So there were definitely adapters, but I don't know that they were being paid for their work as adapters at that point. Interesting. And did you encounter anyone, I guess even people that might be informed in these areas that that they're counting on, you know, be it the federal government, the international community, something like the Paris Climate Agreement. And we all know what happened there, but I'm just saying at the time when you were doing these interviews, were, was there ever any sort of discussions like, well, we need those folks working on the Paris Agreement to get that under control. Or we're not going to be able to adapt. Was there any sort of acknowledgement of the global threat that's occurring that's impacting their local adaptation? Absolutely. There was a number of people that brought up the international story and negotiations around climate change. And most of the places where global negotiations came up were in the American Arctic and in the U.S. territories in the South Pacific, thinking about how little greenhouse gas emissions those communities had emitted and the responsibility of the international community to limit warming in the future, given that both the South Pacific and the Arctic are on the front lines of climate change. That wasn't lost on the local leaders that we were interviewing, and they made really good arguments for why there needed to be strong international action on reducing greenhouse gases, but also why the U.S. needed to be a leader in this. There was some skepticism as to whether the U.S. would be that leader, but there was an acknowledgement that it absolutely had to have some commitments at the international level. You wrote a piece, and I think as part of this journey that people are stereotyping maybe these communities impacted by climate change, that there's just a lot of doom and gloom mentality out there. But you actually argue that it's the opposite. There's a lot of hope. What could you elaborate on that? Yeah, we often think of climate change as this huge crisis, which it is. And to address a crisis, you need to have some idea that the future can be better than what you are starting with. If you feel hopeless and helpless, then you're not going to invest your time, your energy, your expertise, your career into addressing that crisis, right? Hope is this future-oriented emotion. If you feel hopeless about the future, you're going to throw up your hands and say, well, I'm not going to spend my time on this. It's hopeless. And that's why I think hope is a pretty important thing to bring into the climate conversation, because each of the communities that I work alongside has incredible hope for me and for everyone who is looking at climate change and seeing something that is too big to address, because there are local solutions that are being implemented. Are they under-resourced? Absolutely. But are there incredibly brilliant knowledge holders locally across the world and across the U.S. and U.S. territories that are doing everything they can to keep their families safe? Also, absolutely. Right now, it's it's a matter of being able to resource and support local leaders that have the vision, have the local expertise to adapt to climate change 
but just need kind of that extra push so that they can implement those visions. They don't need hope. They need resources. But I think on the flip side, many people that aren't in those communities need hope, need a vision for the future that is better than today so that they can advocate for more resources, for better policies around climate change to support those communities. All right. I want to shift into the organization that you formed that came out of this. But I guess just as a wrap up, were there any communities that you knew and, and you know, you're a scientist and such and this whole notion of managed retreat in some areas that are actually going to have to reach? I mean, Miami, for example, but a big community that's going to have to retreat. Did you sense any of that or did people talk about the, even the concept of, I mean, you've spoken about migration, but the whole idea of translocating an entire town or community or city that when you have six, seven, nine feet of sea level rise, that's in the cards. Did that conversation come out of people where they're just like, we're going to have to leave this area, the, the whole community? A number of communities that we visited and interviewed talked about relocation, about migration. We spoke in American Samoa to a number of local knowledge holders about what it would mean to move as a people connected to the sea to a people connected to the mountains, right? Can you change your identity by moving from one physical geography, this deep connection between land and blood that is seaside up to the mountains? We talked in Alaska in the native village of Shishmaref in 2016 that voted in a very close election to relocate away from an eroding shoreline. We were there for that election and spoke to people about that impossible choice of whether to cast a vote to stay and protect in place with your graveyard that has been there with your grandparents and grandparents, your connection to subsistence hunting and fishing, or are you going to leave that in hope of a safer place? We went to Tangier Island in the Chesapeake Bay and talked to people who were not ready to leave. But also this complicated story that climate change is just one thing that is pushing people to migrate, right? Climate change doesn't exist in this vacuum. There are also economic shifts that are happening that speed up an out-migration that might eventually have an end result of a community underwater, but other people might view that as much further a threat than the immediate threat of losing jobs. Moving because of climate change came up in almost every community that we were in. The conversations were all different. The one similarity between all of them was that the federal government had no guidance and no funding for anyone. No one knew what to expect from the national government on if they were going to be supported in retreating and if they were supported, what that support would look like. You're sitting on all this audio. You've got to get a graduate student to kind of go dig through and have like some sort of limited podcast series around it. It seems like such a great, because I, mean, I know that in itself is its own effort. So anyway, that's my suggestion. And, and I think it'd still be very relevant, even if it's, you know, set back in 2016, 2017. So let's talk about Rising Tides. This is an organization that came directly out of your journeys. W what is Rising Tides? So in 2017, as this project, America's Eroding Edges, was coming to a close, 
I and my partner had just extracted all of this information about what climate change was to local coastal communities across the U.S., what they needed from the federal government and what their vision was for a resilient future. And we were facing a federal government that at the time did not prioritize climate change. I took a hard look at what could I do to not be a mosquito researcher, to go in and extract information and then do nothing with it. So I called a few of the people that I had interviewed and a few local leaders that I continued to work with after visiting their communities on other projects and asked what was a meaningful solution. What could we do with an inactive federal government? And that was really the genesis for this project, Rise Up to Rising Tides. Rising Tides is a matchmaking platform that connects skills-based volunteers with communities in need of climate change adaptation projects. On the smaller end, think of it more as a band-aid with the lack of federal action around adaptation and a step up to do bigger adaptation projects. We connect skill-based volunteers that are lawyers or engineers, landscape ecologists, or educators with communities that need climate adaptation projects like designing a living shoreline so that they can submit that grant to build out that shoreline an educator to a community that needs to come up with an outreach program to the public at their local library about how climate change is impacting their community and what they can do to adapt to those changes. We've been building this out for the past three years and have worked with dozens of communities now, connecting volunteers and local leaders for fully-fledged projects like that outreach program or the Living Shoreline, but also simple one-hour phone conversations about FEMA and how to apply for a grant. Because part of what we learned in those interviews was that communities didn't need another study. We were in villages where you looked to the left and you had dozens of studies that were done on climate change impacts. And people kept telling us that they didn't need any more static studies. They knew that climate change was impacting their communities because they were living through it. What they needed was someone to talk to when they had a question and they had low bandwidth, so they couldn't get on the internet. Or they had no idea where on the internet to ask those questions. So we set up Rising Tides for those projects and also as a hotline for people to connect through these phone calls to answer the questions when those reports and studies couldn't come up with the answers. So let's walk literally through this process. And I, you know, the website, I'll have links to that in the show notes and such, but there's a button. Be a volunteer. I have a lot of adaptation professionals who would be great at volunteering here. What happens? Walk them through the process. As a volunteer, you can click that button and you will send me a message saying who you are. We'll set up a conversation between you and I to 
learn about what your skills are around climate change adaptation and what you're interested in. And importantly, if you're a good fit for a Rising Tides volunteer, once we have that intro call, you can then upload a profile to our online matchmaking platform. You can write a little bit about yourself and your experience, connect to your LinkedIn, upload a photo, where you are geographically in the country, the Northeast, the Midwest, and you'll see a list of projects that communities have uploaded that they might need. So you can browse through those projects and maybe you see that a community in coastal Virginia needs to work on a tourism outreach around historic sites that are being inundated by sunny day flooding. And they're trying to raise money through this tourism. So they need a public relations professional, a storyteller, a marketing professional to dedicate 10 to 12 hours to come up with that outreach program for their tourists. You say that you are interested in this project and you set up an interview with the community leader that posted it. You get to talk with them, make sure that you are a good fit for that specific project. And once you as the volunteer and the community both accept the project, you are on your way. You have a preset three milestone plan of making sure the community is providing you with everything you need to start off the project. A check-in point where I will make sure that you are both continuing on and feel supported. And then some final deliverables around that specific project. There's a bit of evaluation at the end, and you both get to write a testimonial that hopefully makes you both excited to post an additional project and volunteer for another opportunity. I was wondering how long you stayed in the process, because I'm sure it's hard enough as it is to sort of do the interviews and connecting, but you act, you're, you're almost, there is a bit of quality control too, because uh, you know, you pair up the expert with the community, but it, at some point you just like, can they really help this community? But you're there, you're, I guess you're checking in. Uh, so you want to make sure that the community got some, and I mean, that it's not all on you to do that, but that's what you're doing, right? Yeah, it's a bit time intensive at the moment, but it's like you said, Doug, a good quality check, right, to make sure that everything is running smoothly. In an ideal world, there are a number of people on a team that can support this, and we have regional hubs that are able to make sure that everyone is supported regardless of where they are working virtually. But for now, it is me chugging along, making sure everyone feels like they have the tools they need to keep the project going. Okay, and I imagine that there, there's two groups of people that are participating. There's the community and then there's the expert. And so the process of becoming an expert that volunteers is, like you just described, pretty clear cut. There's not a button for a community, though, right? Or is there? Is it like seeking help or is it more on you to actually try to reach out to communities that you think might need help? Or is there a concerned citizen saying, you know what, our mayor's not doing anything? How does that unfold on the community side? Right now, the communities that we are working with are communities that reach out to me. Part of this is from the original communities, those 350 people that we interviewed. We are still supporting many of those communities through skills-based volunteer projects. But I also give a number of talks, and I 
am engaged in climate change adaptation and conversations where I bring up rising tides to communities that are climate affected. And right now, because it is a one woman shop, we are limiting the amount of communities that are able to register. Post-COVID in an ideal world, we would expand that in later 2021-2022 to be fully open to all communities to upload projects. We are hopefully getting a, a bit of grant money towards the end of this year that will help us bring on a few more people and able to expand this to ensure every community who wants to upload a project can and be able to get the support they need through some type of pro bono assistance. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the adaptation ecosystem out there. As you can appreciate, even the field of adaptation is this emerging thing. And so I think that a lot of people would actually be very interested. So you've got people volunteer and they fill out this form. You, I mean, that can those people, do they become their own network that can, can communicate with each other as, once they join you? Or are they kind of just in their own silos and you're just joining them with? And you get what I mean, though, because there's some associations that are being formed out there. And in some ways, you're creating your own association. Uh, well, what's going on with all the people that are volunteering? We are definitely not an association like the adaptation associations out there that are really focused on building a network and building a community. Those are all incredible and they put in so many hours and such hard and thoughtful work on how to build out connections across different people's locations, different sectors of the adaptation economy. We do not pretend to do that and don't have the capacity, but also don't want to step into that work that is already being done by awesome organizations. We do provide an opportunity to think about how to engage in other networks once volunteers have completed a project with us. We have a number of volunteers that are wetland ecologists, historic preservationists that are working on some type of cultural asset, and we push them towards the adaptation. The We push them towards the Preservation Leaders Forum on the National Trust for Historic Preservation to try to engage them in those networks. But most of the people that are volunteering with us wouldn't consider themselves adaptation professionals. They are individuals who are doing work as a marketing professional, as an ecologist at a university, as an educator at a high school in New Mexico, and they are looking to donate some of their time to climate change. And I think this is kind of a, a broader statement about climate change. When you are not engaged in this professionally, it's kind of hard to figure out how to act on climate change. You have these set of things that you can do to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions on a personal level. But in terms of adaptation, there's not many next steps that you can do as an accountant other than vote or donate money. Right. So a lot of the individuals that sign up for rising tides are people who are doing jobs that don't allow them in their nine to five to engage in climate change. 
but feel that they have a skill to give back in their after hours to communities in need of some support. That is fascinating. And I don't know how active you've gotten because, you know, there are those associations, but then there's like the National Adaptation Forum. But then you might talk to people in some like urban planners or people that are in historic preservation that are doing adaptation on their day job, but they don't even realize these things exist. And I think there's a bit of an identity, not crisis, but issue with the, you know, adaptation profession. And is it going to kind of be more cohesive in the future? Or is it just like you, some of these volunteers, it's fascinating that they're volunteering because they want to do some of that, but they don't feel like they're part of a broader, like, well, this whole emerging sector of adaptation, they're not necessarily being part of that. That's very interesting. Yeah, I think that's a really great point and is something I'm also interested in. I go into a lot of my public talks saying that everyone has a part to play in America's climate solutions. And it does not matter what your day job is. You are a climate change champion, even if you don't know that or call yourself that yet. And I absolutely believe that, that everyone does have a part to play and a skill, a voice, time to contribute to climate change work. That isn't the same as being a climate change professional, right? There is a skill set. There is time that is dedicated to learning about climate change, learning adaptation, learning what it means to serve communities as an adaptation professional. And I'm not sure where those two meet. Where does the lawyer who is interested in giving back and does have a skill to give back, but is not a climate adaptation professional, uh, do those two distinct groups meet in some future point? Do they network, engage with each other? Are they the same community? I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that, given that you have talked to so many people across the adaptation world. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I covered a lot because I, I, I'm trying to encourage. I like to think the podcast itself is sort of a very loose, organizing way of adaptation. People to kind of listen to what other people are doing, and you know, I think of how it maybe even a an organization is formed. Like let's say a conservation organization, if maybe has 10, 15, 20 people. They might have a communication director who has no background in conservation, but they brought him on because they had that particular skill set. Maybe that's sort of, you know, you're seeing more people get hired that have very specific adaptation skills, but there aren't actually a lot of university programs that give you that skill set. And my previous episode was on Worcester Polytechnic Institute. They just created a master's program in adaptation. And so maybe some of these people that think, oh, they're accountant, but they want to dedicate themselves more into the climate field that emerging programs like that might help them connect the dots. So I, I think it's encouraging that these associations are out there. And the fact that, I, you know, I, I wasn't aware of the work that you were doing and the shame on me, because I feel like I, I just through my connections through the podcast, people, are, hey, did you hear about this and that? And so that big journey that you did, I think really could have benefited. Maybe <laughs> we could have checked in like on your journey, be like, hey, come on the podcast, tell us how it's going. That would have been really cool. But I think that's a long winded way of saying I'm trying to encourage it. I don't know yet. If it's going to be a cohesive field, that you're an adaptation professional, or is it all just kind of embedded in other fields and sectors? That remains to be seen. Well, I hope that at some point, maybe in the not so distant future, we can have a growing community of climate adaptation professionals that do have these kind of layered associations almost of people who 
you know, identify as adaptation professionals, but still see themselves as part of the same community as that lawyer or accountant that engages in climate adaptation work that maybe doesn't do it as their nine to five. Yeah, and I think, have you, I forgot if I asked you this in a previous discussion, but have you gone to one of the national adaptation forums? Yeah, I, I went to one of the national adaptation forums when it was in Minnesota a few years ago and was definitely blown away by the breadth of people who were there. It was pretty awe-inspiring as someone who feels like they are at a distance over the past decade because I have done my PhD in the UK and my master's in Canada from the American adaptation professionals as a community. So it was pretty awesome to just be in a place where you had hundreds of people that were doing totally awesome things around climate change adaptation. Was this actually in Madison, Wisconsin? Was that the, that, I'm trying to think, Minnesota? I think that was the one after. Uh, this was the one in St. Paul in 2017, I think. You're right. You're right. I went to that one, too. So we were at the same spot. We just obviously didn't know each other. Oh, I'm, I'm confusing these Midwestern states. Sorry, guys. Yeah. And I think and the reason I bring that up, too, is that I think it goes to the point of people that are coming from pretty diverse backgrounds, but they feel like more and more they're getting involved with these climate change issues. And so this forum, this conference was a way for them. There's very few people that show up and they're just like, I'm the chief adaptation officer for my city. That That's still a minority. So that those forums, I think, are people testing the waters on how they identify themselves, which is kind of exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Just the pitch here, like if people want to volunteer in the organization, what should they do? If you want to volunteer, which you all absolutely should, head over to your computer or your smartphone and type in riseuptorisingtides.org. Hit that volunteer button and send me a message so you can chat one-on-one with me to see where you can best fit in in our program and hopefully get you well on your way to being connected with a community that needs your help. Excellent. And also you you, you write a lot. And this is an interesting piece that I really enjoyed is that, you know, we've got President Biden in office and hopefully a lot more is going to happen. And hopefully it'll supercharge an organization like yours where people are really starting to think about it. And maybe there's actually going to be a lot more money. It's not a volunteer thing so much, like you said, as Band-Aid, but like, okay, you're creating a network where people are actually going to get funded and this is prioritized. But you wrote a piece on Biden should appoint a climate migration coordinator. What did you have in mind there? I am beyond excited that the Biden administration is acting on climate change in the way that it currently is. The idea that climate change is a priority issue, that it is being streamlined, is honestly something that I did not think was going to happen regardless of who was going to be president this year. I thought we were pretty far from the type of rhetoric we're hearing from the White House being policy priorities. So just as a foundation, that is pretty cool to to see that is where we are in 2021. We have focused, I think, as a country and in this administration on climate mitigation. And we'll see that this week with the summit as we are trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and get every other country to focus on having 
I think, more ambitious targets as we reach to 2030 and 2050. And that's absolutely necessary. And also, I am preaching to the choir here that we need to do climate adaptation alongside those ambitious targets. Migration is an adaptation strategy, and it is not something that we have yet seen this administration that is still early in its time approach as a priority issue. I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago now that we need a coordinator on climate migration and relocation. The Government Accountability Office published a report in July of last year looking at what communities who were seeking relocation needed. And one of their key takeaways was that there was very little guidance and coordination in the federal government that was inhibiting communities to move forward in migrating away from climate hazards. So in this piece, I argued for a relocation coordinator to sit in the White House's new domestic climate change office to serve as that guidance. I also suggested that there was some project selection and development guidelines for who would qualify for funding and technical assistance around relocation, bringing it way back to those interviews in 2016 when communities were uncertain who would get funding and what type of funding they would get for relocation if they chose that as an adaptation option. And of course, you can't do anything without money. So I argued for a dedicated funding stream for relocation. And I suggested that this would come from the BRIC program in FEMA, the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities program that came out, I think, from the Disaster Recovery and Reform Act in 2018. That's a pretty cool program and I think could fit well with migration and relocation of U.S. and U.S. territory communities. Well, I love this idea, and I want it to be called a climate migration coordinator. I think, of course, some people are going to scream bloody murder. They're trying to get you to move away from communities, and well, maybe that's what they're doing, but we can't shy away from using this language. And I think, of course, it has to be tied to funding, but I love the idea, and they should be embedding more of these high-profile climate positions with that language. I mean, part of this is just creating some public awareness around climate change, and just having a climate czar or whatever is not enough. So uh, I really love the idea, and I hope they would like oh well we'll do it but we're gonna call it the the movement cord. I just just own up to what's going on here you know. Yep, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> to the benefit of Trump, he opened the door on just saying so many outrageous things that we these aren't outrageous and so just own it. Maybe people scream bloody murder for a couple of days and then people move on and so I think maybe if we've learned anything from that approach that. Just own it, you know. I, I will push your idea as much as I can. Tell me what Our America Climate of Hope is. Our America Climate of Hope is a special that was produced with National Geographic in partnership with ABC. And it's on Hulu right now, which all of you should definitely go and check out. 
It tells the story of how extreme weather events have devastated American communities over the past few years, but of the innovation and ingenuity of communities across America, from California to Texas to Philadelphia to New York, on how people are living in a climate-changed world and how they are pushing innovations forward at a local level to live more sustainably. I had the privilege of helping out with this special, and I make some cameos in it, so you can look for me in that on Hulu. But it's a pretty cool story that balances the real catastrophes that come with a climate-changed world and also that Americans and humans are a pretty unique species that respond and adapt to those changes to keep the people in places they love safe. Uh, very cool. And folks, definitely check it out. And you've been on Hulu. Now you got to get on Netflix, and that will just be the coolest. So very cool. I asked this question of all my guests. Well, not all, because sometimes they don't have a good answer. But the, these last two questions is, do you have a favorite Twitter handle that you could recommend my listeners check out? My favorite Twitter handle is Quok, which is a podcast, Coffee and Quok, from Alaska, which everyone should check out if they like podcasts, which I'm sure they do if they are listening to yours. And it's a podcast that explores contemporary native life in urban Alaska. And they actually had a few episodes on the front lines of climate change in Alaska, which were really awesome that they went up to North Slope and they talked about sewage systems and they talked about culture and climate change. They always have pretty awesome tweets and even better episodes. So I would encourage you to check that out. Final question. If you could recommend any guests to come on my podcast, who would it be? Any guests to come on your podcast? You have already interviewed so many of my friends. I, <laughs> I always suggest, Marcy, two suggestions for who to bring on your podcast. Austin Amosak, who is the marine advocate at Coric in Nome, Alaska who is a really thoughtful, traditional knowledge holder and advocate for marine issues and maritime issues in Alaska and the Arctic, much of which focuses on climate change and adapting to climate change. So I would suggest Austin. Jocelyn Perry also, who is at the University of Pennsylvania, who does some pretty awesome work bringing people together around climate change, equity, and migration, mostly around cities, but also kind of at an international scale. I would definitely suggest her to think more on this migration issue. Excellent recommendations. And I, you were for, so people know you were referring to Dr. Marcy Rockman. She, she came out a while ago. So yeah, she was a great interview to have. Victoria, thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you're doing and that journey that you did in this organization, Rising Ties. What a, what a great resource that, and what you're doing there. And thanks for coming and sharing your story. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.
Hey Adapters, welcome back. Joining me again is Judge Alice Hill. Alice is a David Rubenstein Senior Fellow at Council on Foreign Relations. Alice's work at CFR focuses on the risks, consequences, and responses associated with climate change. Alice previously served as Special Assistant to President Obama and Senior Director for Resilience Policy on the National Security Council staff, where she led the development of national policy to build resilience to catastrophic risks. Policymaking at the highest level of government remains a mystery to many. The Obama White House applied an effective formula to push forward an aggressive climate agenda. The secret? Focusing on outcomes. Today, Alice will share with us lessons from the Obama White House and how climate policy really got done. Hey, Alice, welcome back. Oh, thank you for having me. What a pleasure. So we're going to be talking about your time at the Obama White House, and this is great. This is, I'm a political junkie, and, you know, let's just start. You wrote an article about this. Well, it's actually a chapter in a book. Can you give a little bit of background on that? Sure. I was invited to contribute a chapter about President Obama and how he led climate efforts uh, to a book uh, edited by three superstars in the climate field. That's Claude Henry, Johan Rockström, and Nicholas Stern. I was just super honored to be asked to do this. So my chapter focuses on what I experienced, and that was an extraordinary run of leadership that proved that focus and accountability really can drive an agenda at the highest levels of government. Okay, so in the chapter, you argue that there were three factors that contributed to the progress during President Obama's time there. What, What were those factors? Well, among them was a focus. And the first of that is that in the federal government, because it's really sprawling and large in Washington, D.C., there is a common tendency to hold a lot of meetings to communicate information, to share ideas, to make sure that people understand what's coming ahead. And that's just built into any policymaking approach. But under President Obama, and particularly with John Podesta, when he was his senior counselor on these issues, it was clear that he understood process as part of the decision making, but really what is the deliverable that you're going to have? And then an agenda was set to make sure that there was a rollout on a regular basis of the announcements. And that created an impression that everything was moving forward. And finally, there was a willingness to take a stand where needed to push policy further ahead when there was internal disputes to try to make sure that it didn't get stalled out if there were good reasons for going forward. Well, the chapter makes for a great read. I loved it. I have, I've mentioned in the past, I have my own federal experience. And a, a lot of what you bring up in the chapter is timing. And it seems like that first term, I don't know if you'd call it a missed opportunity, but there's the politics at play. And then John Podesta, you'd mentioned that he's a fascinating character, obviously a major player in the DC scene, but that was the second term. Could you kind of elaborate on the whole timing aspect in regards to getting anything done? Sure. Well, if you recall in the leading up to the election, climate change was really not a focus in, in 2008. And, but President Obama had some intentions to advance the climate agenda. 
unfortunately, in that first term, it really ran into some headwinds. Uh, there was an international meeting that did not go well and left many wondering. President Obama showed up at the last minute. What value did he bring in showing up at the last minute? And then there was a breakdown. There was going to be the idea of big legislation to address carbon emissions. That never happened. It ground to a halt. So the first term had not gone as planned and felt a little, I think, left the whole environmental and climate community somewhat disappointed. But then President Obama was elected. And right before that election, Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy slammed into Manhattan. And one of the things that is true in policymaking is that if there's a crisis, and this is what Obama's first chief of staff said, Rahm Emanuel, never let a good crisis go to waste. Hurricane Sandy was a crisis for the nation. It really introduced the concept that these bigger storms could bring a city and a region to its knees. So from that, there was concerted effort to learn to do better. It, it was what I call in a book I co-authored, A No More Moment, where a community says, we're not going to have that happen again. And the, to some extent, the federal government said, hey, we got to do better to prepare. We're not going to have that kind of devastation again. And President Obama used that event to great advantage. And he also brought on John Podesta. And importantly, President Obama was in the second of his two terms. One thing that we see with politicians on the local, national level is that climate sometimes becomes a legacy issue for them if they're nearing the end of their terms. It's an expression, N-I-M-T, not in my term for many politicians because there are other more seemingly urgent issues, crime, education, just making sure the potholes are filled that take up the time of a politician. But in that their last years, they tend to look at what can have a lasting legacy and certainly making progress on climate is one of those. So that's what happened in the second term. President Obama was all in on climate to really commit to doing as much as possible within the scope of the powers that he had available. Well, you know, Superstone Sandy is a character in your chapter. It was just made for compelling reading. And in your own experience working for the federal government, National Security Council, you you could talk to scientists and just during all that period, they're consistent. Here's the threat. It's getting worse. There was no like sort of roller coaster and support for it or not. The scientists are very consistent. And how is that? You have to you know play the politics of whoever's in the administration. But how did that play into, I guess, what your position there and what you were seeing that because the scientists were absolutely consistent, even through all that, even before Superstorm Sandy. Right. Uh, And it wasn't that the science had changed at all. It was just that we had a visualization of what the science was telling us in how Superstorm Sandy occurred. I think that the scientists during my tenure in the White House were absolutely partners in all of this. Uh, And one of the things that they welcomed and wanted to work on themselves is improving science communication. Sometimes the scientists had communicated and emphasized the uncertainty in climate change, but it was realized that there's so many areas where we are certain that it hasn't changed, that if we emphasize those and help 
people understand those, we could get greater recognition of what the true stakes were. And so when I was in the White House, I worked with the President's Science Advisor, Dr. John Holdren, and his team at the Office of Science, Technology, and Policy. And we were true partners. I was in the National Security Council's uh, staff, but we worked together to promote different projects, including creating a web presence with the Climate Resilience Toolkit for the nation to working on a number of executive orders designed to address the threats we were facing. And I think that's a very important model. The policymakers need to work with the scientists to make sure that the policy reflects accurately the science and the scientists need to work with the policymakers to understand how their science can better inform the decisions made by policymakers. And that's one of the real challenges that has bedeviled, in my opinion, climate work is that those two groups have been somewhat separate. And in the White House, we were all working together so we could communicate more forcefully really what the picture was and and why people should care. Okay, so let's go back to John Podesta just re- really briefly. And so what one of the reasons he was brought in is just this extensive government experience and he understands the bureaucracy and people don't really understand if you want to get things done, you need to understand how that works. So a lot of progress was made. and But you do acknowledge in, in the chapter like, okay, well, these are all executive branch approaches to climate change. You know, you, the Congress just was not, you know, 2010, you know, famously the Tea Party I mean, Republicans took over the House. What happens there? What happened with Donald Trump being elected president in regards to all that progress being made? But well, I, President Trump rolled back a lot of that work, particularly because there wasn't congressional agreement. It had been done by executive order. That's when the president orders things within his or her powers to be done by the federal government. Sometimes, and those executive orders have been around for a long time, sometimes executive orders last for 40 years and no president and successively elected touches them. The federal agencies just keep building and improving whatever they're doing in response to those orders. But President Trump came in with an agenda. He didn't reverse all of the orders that President Obama had done in climate space, but he reversed a lot of them. And that highlighted one of the vulnerabilities of this go-it-alone approach when you're in a highly polarized and divided Congress and you can't get to agreement and the president marches forward. So it got rolled back during Trump and it also created an oppression for the rest of the world, which I encounter all the time, that the United States is fickle and that we're not a trustworthy partner. We said we were going to lead on climate and then we reversed everything. We said we were going to do a variety of things to help the world address the impacts of climate change, and we haven't really honored those. So there's deep skepticism. And now we have a new president who has entered into the climate action fight in a way that we've never seen before, much more attention, much more energy than even in the Obama administration. But that reputation of fickleness is still overshadowing a bit the relations of the United States with other countries. There's a skepticism. Can the United States deliver when it's clear that our Congress is deeply split, that the American people are less split, but they're still pretty split on the issue of climate change. Can the United States really deliver given those politics? And that will be an issue that the Biden administration will be addressing for quite some time to prove that whatever it does has more lasting value 
than what happened, at least some of the efforts done under the Obama administration. Well, one of the ways in my own experiences in the federal government of baking in some of these long-term changes is tie budgets to it. So like Superstorm Sandy, long-term funding for projects, things that outlived the Obama administration. And so it's it's not the, you know, the best way to do things, but, you know, these funding mechanisms might last a decade or whatever, and they're still funding resilience projects. They might change the name, but there's ways to try to sneak in, I guess, longer-term <laughs> executive approaches. Yes. And one thing that became clear is if the Biden administration acts very early and get, and it, and so far they are getting these executive orders out now so that the agencies start creating regulations in response to the executive orders, that also further embeds it. What happened because it was in the second term, these executive orders came later and there wasn't as much time for regulation making. So it was easier to rescind a lot of the work by the Trump administration. So what would you recommend just based on your own experience in the federal government? And it, it is, we talk about the rest of the world thinking how fickle we are. I think Americans say that, I think there's this sort of fatalism that we've had two years here, right? But there's no, I mean, it might, might not be two years of sort of, you know, potential legislative action, but what truly, you know, take advantage of the opportunity. What would you recommend for climate action over the next two years, I guess? Well, we've seen a bit of it already, making sure that you are ambitious, but ruthlessly prioritize what you think is most important to get done and focus, focus, focus. One of the really hard things for particularly political appointees as they're starting in government is that uh, the urgent, the everyday demands, a crisis here, a crisis there, overcomes the important. and. Now, climate is a crisis and it's urgent, but you have other things that might require, you know, a terrorist attack or some other immediate response is needed that forces the setting aside of the work. It's very important that the leadership carves out teams, people, and an agenda that keeps moving no matter what other crises are hitting, because just with any longer term project, it tends to get kicked to the side. And that will be highly detrimental to proving that the United States can actually deliver on these issues. Right now, they need to make sure that those who have climate in their titles and who are responsible for climate have the space and resources and support to get the job done. Uh, and that means maybe others will have to be the responders to the crisis while we folk have a group focus on just what can we accomplish in terms of climate action during this precious moment that we have. Okay, Alice, it was a great chapter, just a fun read for me. I have my own biases why I think it was so fun, but I encourage other people. And the whole the whole book covers a, a lot of a ground in, in, in that regard. So definitely recommend. And I think it's it's all available free too. The chapters, you can just download a yes. PDFs. And so yes, it's one of those online free things. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's, and uh, these are the contributors are just top notch. So I do highly recommend it. We'll include a link to that here within this episode guide. But before I let you go, what, what's up next? You, we, you mentioned earlier some of the writing that you're doing now. What are some of the other areas that you're focusing on and what, what are some upcoming pieces? Well, one of the exciting things coming out of the pandemic is this global experience with catastrophic risk has in my opinion, increased focus on climate change and what are some of the solutions. And we're seeing a lot of movement in the financial markets, the increase of green bonds. Those are 
offerings to raise money that are labeled green. We're seeing ESG, environmental, social and governments, bonds, funds just exploding. I mean, we're seeing trillions of dollars flow into these areas. We're also seeing companies promise that they will be net zero. But one of the big issues with all of this is greenwashing. And that is like whitewashing. Are they just covering over something that's really not all that green or environmentally sound and just putting that label on? It's a little like if you go to the market and you want organic, thinking they're pesticide-free blueberries and organic is slapped on there. And then you learn, well, that doesn't really mean pesticide-free. You know, a problem. So we need to make sure we understand what these promises are before we invest in that if we really want to make sure that our investments are green. So that's the focus of this. Uh, it may require new regulation and it's informed a bit by my experience as a prosecutor of fraud as well as a judge that we need to make sure that People are actually fulfilling the promises as would be commonly understood when they make uh, that statement. You know, I just love that whole concept. There's some sort of TV show like greenwashing and you're on trial and you have a prosecutor sort of, this is all the greenwashing. You know, that'd actually be pretty entertaining. You could probably learn a lot. So. <laughs> and so, but the, you, you, I don't think you mentioned this is coming out in a particular uh, art journal or what's the... Oh, it- and it just came out as a opinion piece. I wrote it with Jennifer Nash, who was at the Harvard Business School, and it just came out as opinion piece in The Hill. Okay, well, we're going to get you back on and probably have a longer conversation about that whole topic in general. So, Alice, again, fantastic. It's always a treat to have you on Simpatico and appreciate you making the time. I'm going to bring you to just chatting, but thanks again for the work that you're doing. You're just a leader in this field, and so it's always a treat. Oh, thank you. You're way too kind. Thank you. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Victoria for coming on the podcast. What an epic journey Victoria took. Kudos to National Geographic for supporting her work. I really enjoyed our conversation about what it means to be an adaptation professional. It's continually evolving, and as she explained, more and more people are trying to find ways that they can contribute to the overall climate change response. I think it's fantastic that people are volunteering their skills to rising tides. But we'll know the profession has come of age when it's fully funded and these communities in need don't need pro bono work to help them adapt. Imagine if we approach rehabilitating Superfund sites through a network of volunteers. That would be absurd. We need to elevate these issues of adaptation to similar levels of urgency. On that note, you heard her. Reach out to Victoria if you're looking for an opportunity to do something new and you think you have a particular skill that could help. And I challenge some science communication graduate students out there, help her get those audio recordings into a podcast series. That could serve as a really useful historical snapshot of people's attitudes about dealing with climate change. And thanks to Judge Alice Hill for coming on to share some of her recent work. She'll be back soon to share an article she recently wrote on risk and climate change. Always such a treat to host Alice. Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work, Think about using a podcast and using America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. So, for example, World Wildlife Fund sponsored me to do several episodes around flooding and disaster management. 
At the time, I traveled on location to interview experts they wanted me to include as part of that episode. Usually those episodes have quite a few expert guests. So basically they are sponsoring an entire episode to share their particular story. I've done this with Harvard, UCLA, the University of Florida, a few nonprofits. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners. So think about doing something different than writing a white paper at the end of your project. Most projects have communications written into them. So consider budgeting in a podcast. And I have been doing these remotely for the past year, but I have recently completed my vaccinations, and so should you, and I'm slowly thinking of getting into travel again, like many of you. Going on location does provide great opportunities to capture unusual conversations that could be part of that episode. So email me at americadaps at gmail.com to learn more. So final housekeeping, join the Facebook page and Facebook community group. Just search for America Daps and there it is. To the community group, you have to join, but I will approve you right away. There's some nice conversations. People share some of their own work in there. Definitely check it out. And on that note, I love hearing from you. I will say this every episode. Take the time, reach out, email me, pick up your phone right now and send me a note. Just even to tell me what you do in the field, how you get value out of the podcast. Maybe recommend a guest. This is really useful to me. Over the years that I've been doing this podcast, hearing from my listeners gives me a real sense of how the podcast is useful to all of you. And I adjust accordingly. And I just love hearing what you're doing. If you are in the climate space, just hearing how you're getting value out of the podcast is really helpful. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out the website, americadaps.org. And stick around until the end of this episode to hear a promo for the great political podcast, Your Political Playlist. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time. It was clear that in 2020, Americans showed up to the political conversation. But now many of us are exhausted after what seemed like a lifetime of political chaos. How do we continue to engage and figure out what policies impact us? As a political strategist who's worked inside and outside of Washington and on some of the biggest campaigns of the past two decades, I know firsthand how complicated politics can seem. I'm Emily Tish sussman host of Your Political Playlist, where we break down substantive conversations with women at the seat of power and activism and bring them to you every Thursday that'll leave you prepared and motivated before you even finish your first cup of coffee. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Talk to you soon.